This is ONA on air from ONA 22 in Los Angeles, California. Inspiring and supporting innovation and excellence in digital journalism, boldly innovating to better engage and inform the public. I'm Kira Hoffelmeyer, and in this episode of ONA on Air, we're discussing newsletters, best practices for starting them, and how to move them forward. Let's start with consistency. If you don't have a newsletter already, you'll want to make sure you're picking a day or days that work for you. And then you'll want to make sure you have a time in mind. You might end up tweaking this time as you are pulling in data and analytics. We'll talk more about that later. Really, you want to hone in on your workflow. Who's going to do it? Who's going to help them? When it's going to get done? How often? On and on. This can get complicated in smaller newsrooms where we have one person who wears a lot of hats. So if you're someone from a smaller newsroom listening to us, take comfort in this tidbit from Rebecca Monson, COO and co-founder of Letterhead. I think there's a couple of things that we see. One is um, there's a there's a, an amount of like sales energy that we often see that small publishers are small publishers typically get started right because it's like we're into the journalism we want to serve the community the revenue piece requires as much focus and concentration as the editorial piece just don't underestimate the time that's going to be dedicated to workflow one of the things that we see is just how much energy it takes to manage sponsorships to manage customer communication all of those pieces are very very complicated and when we were building a local publishing company that was uh, as a product person, I was like, this is absolute BS. We, we must build tools for this because it is taking so much time and energy that we can't do our core mission, right? Um, and that's kind of why Letterhead exists in the first place. So figuring out those workflows, I think, is like the other thing where I think small publishers, you, you hit so many walls that people stop. The next thing you're going to think about is demographics and the things that your readers want to read and would like you to cover. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's newsletter about black culture, Unapologetically ATL, uses a consistent set of hosts but still changes it up every once in a while. We have also invited other people from our news lo- newsroom to participate in helping us build this product. So our newsletter, our AJC friends, they've shared their stories, they've shared their favorite books, TV shows, and things to do around the city. They've also shared playlists and music that have inspired them. So it really is a group effort. That's Naja Parker, the multi-platform audience specialist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And while Atlanta has a large black population, even a small audience can go a long way. Chris Sofer, co-founder and CEO of Letterhead, says your subscriber number doesn't matter as much as you think it might. It's an order of operations problem. We have a lot of phone calls, people who are like, well, I have an audience of 5,000 or 10,000 or 20,000, you know, so that's not big enough, right? And the answer is like, you know, big enough for what, right? I mean, uh, if, if your goal is to run automated CPM-based advertising, you know, that's entirely programmatic, that's true. Like, you're going to make very, very little money that way. Um, but if you're willing to deploy different kinds of revenue products through your email, the return on that can be really pretty impressive. And so it's sort of which things do you, what revenue products do you deploy at what stage, I think is where a lot of folks Um, you know, can put more energy in. Long story short, you can't rely on programmatic ads because it won't make you the return you're hoping for if your subscriber list is small. But there's an advantage that smaller publishers have over larger ones. Because if you're working with, you know, 100,000 plus subscribers in your your kind of total audience, you can do some really interesting stuff and spin up experiments and, you know, be putting 1,000, 5,000 people on a new product and pretty quickly getting testing data back. But that gets very hard to do in large environments. So I think that's one 
and a missed opportunity that we see a lot. And then the other um, with larger publishers is about kind of how you join that automated stuff from your content library to more original, you know, bespoke things. So- and when it comes to getting subscribers, keep it simple. Parker recommends you find every way to simplify the sign-up process. We noticed that there were way too many steps involved in getting folks to sign up for a newsletter. So one, you had to register for an account on the AJC, and then the account would take you to a newsletter page where you would have to manage your subscription. And we found that process to be extremely wonky, so we just simplified it by providing a link And when you click on the link, it will take you to a site that briefly describes what your newsletter, what your product is about in just a couple of sentences. And there's a box for you to put your email address. That's it. No need to sign in for your AJC account or try to find out where the newsletter page is on their website. We simplified their process. And we found that to be a huge win for us. Once we started promoting this link, our launch week, we got 1,000 subscribers just from simplifying the process. The next step is engaging audiences, new and old. Parker says something they found to be successful was collaborating with influencers. One of the stories we featured in the newsletter was on Desi Banks. Is anybody familiar with him? He is a black comedian from Atlanta, Georgia. He does a bunch of skits and fun plays on his Instagram account. He also has 6 million followers on Instagram. And that was at the time. I took a look at his Instagram page before the session. Now it's 7.8 million followers. So we saw that he had significant reach and he actually had the audience that we were trying to capture, young and black. So we collaborated with him by doing a profile story on him. We also did some promo features, including videos, and we gave him these assets to share with his 6 million followers. And he did it. And that really worked for us as well. Parker and the unapologetically ATL team also used surveys in the didn't seem obvious in the beginning, but it really is obvious. If you want to know the type of the type of topics that your readers are interested in, just ask them. So we started putting surveys into our newsletter. We asked folks questions about the topics that they're interested in learning more about. We also asked them information about their demographics because the goal with this newsletter is to cater to the black community. So we wanted to make sure that we were doing that. We also wanted to know how folks consume their news, where they're getting their news from, and how they signed up for our newsletter. Pro tip, put the survey at the top of your newsletter to continue to get more engagement. So from our survey, we found that folks in our in the community that we want to reach, they're interested in local news, they're interested in entertainment, and they're interested in lifestyle topics. So we use this survey to help us guide the type of content that we want to include in our newsletter. So that doesn't mean we don't include harder news stories. We have to just be mindful and more intentional. Some other things you can try in your newsletters to increase engagement is contests to win tickets to shows or sporting events. Polls, videos, or even putting podcasts in there. Now that you've built it, let's track it. News organizations need to work with marketing teams to actually make this successful. Monson says newsletters are a place where we see the most merging of marketing slash advertising and news teams, and there's usually bad vibes. Um, Every editorial email person I know who's doing networked emails in particular is like in some sort of like low-grade bad vibes with the marketing team. <laughs> um, and, and we got to solve that, right? Because we need, we need to be all pulling in the same direction. So that's the thing that I think, um, I think people are starting to like internally champion that we are thinking about these products as we, we're thinking more user centric, right? About what email is in our organization. And it can't just be um, this very fragmented strategy. We have to balance those things out. 
Another thing to consider when you're pulling data and analytics for your newsletters is that the data is different than what we're looking for on a website or on social media. The newsletter offering creates different audience than your website, right? And so now we're in the reconciliation phase of those things and understanding like where we can convert and where we can't, I think is a big question that I hear people talking about a lot. And I think, I, I don't know that there's any great solutions or answers right now, but those are things that I am like hearing buzz around a lot. Like how do we think about our audience on email holistically in terms of all of our product stack? And you should seriously consider the analytics you're being supplied with. Sofer says things like open rates may not be all that valuable. And has never been as reliable as people have sort of pretended it is, right? Um, The way opens are tracked and all these other things have always had limitations because email is ancient technology. Instead, Sofer says the new push toward looking at longer-term data is going to be really healthy for all of our newsletter analytics. And when you're looking to get data from the ad and sales side of it, first-party data is super valuable. Monson says, for now, when you're looking at what data to pull, here's what you should look at. Longer term trend data. First of all, understanding that. So like um, a lot of times we see like the open rate, like I think like now we're looking further down. Like I think we're looking at click rates as uh, as much more important. And, and even more than click rates, you need to know the click rate of what. Right. And this is the challenge, I think, for editorial publishers in particular, because right now a lot of the the ESP tooling is not really built for that. Right. You have to do a lot of your own like data munging and stuff to find that information. Your analytics should tell you the what and the who. And it's up to publishers to explain the why to salespeople who then eventually explain that to the people who are going to buy your product. Okay, so let's talk about time spent on email. Monson says that one is really complicated. We've learned that on the web, time spent is like, we think this is super important unless someone just leaves their <laughs> the web page open and it means nothing, right? Um, so email so is different because we, we don't have JavaScript and email is like real old and super boring and like very flat technology, which makes it super cheap to iterate on and has wonderful other properties. But we're not going to be, there's no countdown timer. So can you measure it? Absolutely. Here's what you got to have. You have to have a timestamp of an open. You have to have a timestamp of clicks. Uh, and you have to have timestamps of pixel loads all the way down. It's very complicated. No one's going to offer you that out of the box. Um, so those are the things that you would need in order to measure that. Monson says it's more important to measure frequency of use. How frequently is someone interacting with uh, the the email that you put out? How frequently are they clicking? How, how frequently are they clicking multiple times and on what? From there, it's all a manual process you'll have to do on your own in a spreadsheet or a database that you build. Too long didn't read. Email analytics aren't great yet, we hope, because the system is so basic Meantime, if you're worried about engaging younger audiences, they'll get there. People need email when they get jobs. So, so I'm, I mean, I'm just going to be straight up with you. Like, that, this is, like, like Gen Zers are not going to be on email, right? And that's totally cool, and I think you should have a diversified strategy about what you're doing. Like, I, like, I think you should be, like, leveraging social to convert folks in, but there has to be a value prop there as well, right? But I, I will tell you, just having done a boatload of audience research on this, you're not going to get a 20-year-old to open email until it's part of their daily job. So that's the thing. That is the reason why people use email for the most part. And even we see this like right with chat, work chat and things like that. 
uh, ticking up, right, there is still like huge value in the inbox because it's internal. That's internal communication and your external communication comes through your inbox still. So um, just to note, I think it is valuable to learn <laughs> to learn all the social platforms, but just don't expect that Gen Z is going to like be like all hot for email uh, until they literally have to check it every day. Thanks for listening to this dissection of newsletter best practices with me. You've been listening to ONA On Air. I'm Kira Hoffelmeyer. Keep coming back here for more on the ONA conference. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Online News Association is the world's largest digital journalism association. 